welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 144. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we are recording this today on Wednesday, the 22nd of December, 2021. So here in sunny Australia, it is three days out from Christmas. Three days out. That's a typical bodybuilding thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, we'll definitely be eating very different food this year in three days compared to what we would be eating three days out if we were in prep. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you were saying three days out from show day though. No, three days (laughs) out from Christmas day, my yo. Instead of wearing some red trunks, we'll be wearing some red Christmas hats. (laughs) Yeah, so I thought we'd start off a little bit different today. And there's always a big fuss about Christmas on social media about enjoying yourself and the Christmas weight gain and whether you stick to your diet or whether you enjoy the Christmas food. And we're just going to put maybe a few different Christmas foods into perspective based on fat gain. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is a common misconception, if anything, that people often, they're quite daunted by Christmas rolling around and the Christmas festivities and Christmas feasts. And it's not uncommon to hear your clients say like, man, I just, I don't want to gain a bunch of weight, right? And well, they automatically expect that they're going to have to do something very far-fetched on mm-hmm. Christmas uh, or very meticulous or on Christmas in order to stay on track with their goals. Even clients who are in a weight gaining phase or clients that are don't have very strict weight loss goals, they think they're going to have to not partake in anything related to Christmas mm-hmm. in order to stay on track, which is just not the case. Yeah. And we're also not here to say that Christmas food isn't energy dense because... Mm. You know, certain Christmas foods certainly can be. At least what I find here in Australia is that Christmas foods, they're quite fresh. And if you don't overindulge in a lot of the dessert side of things, you can actually, yeah, or alcohol, you can actually have a pretty decently balanced meal at Christmas lunch because here in Australia compared to North America, it's like boiling hot. You know, it's usually like a 35 degree day. It's either very sunny or most of the time it's actually raining on Mm. Christmas day at least where we live here and it's kind of muggy but when it's hot you don't necessarily crave super hot food so in North America it's very normal to have a big hot roast turkey and a big thing of buttery mashed potatoes and some warm pumpkin pie whatever it may be but here in Australia because it's really hot you crave more of those fresh cooler foods so You'll have a decent serving of meat, but it's usually like a cold cut of sliced ham and you'll have a bunch of fresh salads and lots of prawns and it's quite nice. So you actually generally have the option on Christmas day for most people to get together with their families. There's a vegetable or two. There's some pretty lean meat cuts. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, especially with my family, they usually do it. A lot of different foods on offer, seafood, Mm. vegetables, that sort of stuff. But obviously everyone does their different thing, but we're going to get to some facts now. More is just a humorous little addition rather than anything else. It's a bit far-fetched. Absolutely. So kind of tying it back to how people are usually scared that they're going to gain a bunch of weight over Christmas, or at least from that just one big lunch on Christmas day. But let's start to spitball some numbers, Jack. All right. So we know that one kilogram of body fat, if you were to gain one kilogram of body fat, that would require you to eat in an excess of around 7,700 calories above your maintenance calories 
for that day. So 7,700 calories. Now, let's put this into perspective if you were to eat some Christmas ham. So the average Christmas ham without the bone will probably weigh about five kilograms. Now, 100 grams of a serving of that Christmas ham would have around 17 grams of protein, five grams of fat, and two grams of carbohydrates. So around 111 calories. Now, if you ate this whole Christmas ham, I'm talking about five kilograms there, right? Really filled up your belly. That would be 5,500 calories. And you would get around 850 grams of protein, 125 grams of fat, and 100 grams of carbohydrates. Now, 850 grams of protein, that is enough protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis 34 times. Did you use 25 grams though? Yeah, if you use a 25 gram serving of protein, 34 times you're stimulating MPS. So let's say that you were supposed to have around hmm, four meals per day, 34 divided by four. So what's that? You're stimulating muscle protein synthesis there for eight and a half days, over a week, man. So what I'm trying to get at here is that if one kilogram of actual tissue weight of body fat is 7,700 calories. And if you went ham, pardon the pun, on the ham, and you ate the entire Christmas ham, man, you would technically not even gain one kilogram of body fat from that because the entire Christmas ham itself, it's only 5,550 calories. So you could basically only. have one and a half <laughs> Christmas hams. Technically, man. Well, then you have to factor in also your current maintenance. So if your maintenance is 3,000 calories, that means you would need more like 10,700 calories. Dude, and you've got to factor in some gnarly meat sweats. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've never attempted to eat a whole ham. I've eaten a decent amount of ham in my life, but not near five kilograms of the stuff. I would be, I would be genuinely impressed if someone could mm. do that. Yeah, I don't, don't think many people could. It would have to take a, a competitive eater, I think. <laughs> but either way, guys, we're trying to say that even if you the went whole... ham, you are very unlikely to actually tip over the scale by one kilogram of additional body mm. fat. But Jack, I know that you've got some fun Christmas facts for us, foodies. Just one fact. But my cri favorite Christmas food is fruit mince pies, which I know that you've never had before. Mm -hmm. Maybe 2021 will be the one. <laughs> Have you ever had like Christmas cake or plum pudding before? No, I, I guess growing up in Canada, we had a lot more like pies, like traditional, mm. like apple pies and pumpkin pies and like rhubarbs, but never had a, a cold fruit mince pie. Mm. Not a warm one either? No, not either. <laughs> not even a plum pudding. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I guess because I've got half of my family is from the UK. So it's very traditional there to have like the Christmas cake, plum pudding mm -hmm. and like light the plum pudding on fire with brandy or whiskey, whatever they use. But anyway, getting back to fruit mince pies. So one fruit mince pie is about 236 calories, which to be honest is, is more than I thought. Yeah. It's a decent chunk. It's mainly carbohydrates, a little bit of fat and negligible protein. Mm -hmm. But for those who don't know what it is, like I was always confused as a kid why they called it fruit mince because I used to think it was mince until I tried it. Mm. Apparently it's not mince. It's just basically a mix of dried fruit. And then they chuck it in a little pastry pie thing. Well, mince just relates to the way that it's been textured. Yeah, but as a child, you know what it's like. <laughs> yes. You're like, my fruit is a meat. <laughs> so if you were to gain a kilo of body fat from that, 
not factoring in the maintenance, like that's 7,700 divided by 236, which is 32.6 fruit mince pies. Dude, I reckon, I never even had one of these things, but I've seen the size of them. You know, they're not substantial. I reckon it would be a hell of a lot easier to eat 32 and a half fruit mince pies compared to over five kilograms <laughs> of ham. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a substantial difference. I know I'd rather eat the fruit mince pies, that's for sure. I think I'd, I'd rather get... I think I'd rather eat the ham. No, I don't think so. Once you try the fruit mince pie. Mm, I don't a know. bit of ice cream. I love meat. I'm just one of those people like I've always almost struggled to understand how some people can't quite hit their protein intake, you know? Have you tried the carnivore diet? I've heard it's quite good for the health. <laughs> health with a 3? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't say I have. Well, shall we move on to some other questions? Yes, yeah. We're, we're done with the very serious ones. So guys, now we're getting into the Q&A of this podcast. Now, this first question is related to training volume. So it says, if I'm doing a high amount of reps with a lower weight versus a low amount of reps with a heavier weight, will I get the same stimulus if I'm going to failure on both? So this is kind of posing the argument of, Higher reps, lower weight versus lower reps, higher weight. Which one's more optimal for muscle hypertrophy? Mm. And I think a lot of people phrase this question differently by saying like, okay, I'm going to do lower reps for strength or going to do higher reps for endurance. And then in the middle is like hypertrophy, so on and so forth. But the, the short answer and one of the most important aspects of this answer is keeping relative intensity the same across whatever rep range you do. Mm. And if you keep intensity high, so probably around like within zero to three reps from failure and keep within that hypertrophy rep range, hypertrophy stimulus is going to be very similar across the different rep ranges. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a few considerations though. Yeah, absolutely. And that almost reminds me of how much this has actually changed ever since we started learning about exercise science. Because even back when we were at uni in like 2015, our first year, I even remember on some of our exams, there would be multiple questions. Like you have an athlete and they are a strength athlete, which rep range should they be training in? And it's like one to six, six to 12, 12 plus. And then you'd be like, oh, they're a strength athlete. So they should be training predominantly in the one to six rep range sort of thing. And oh, if they're a runner, then of course they should be doing endurance reps. So training in the 12 plus rep range. Even in these past few years, exercise science and a lot of literature has tried to test these theories and see, okay, is there actually merit in this? Do you have to limit yourself to a certain rep range if you're a certain type of athlete? And ultimately what they found is that it really does depend on how hard you're training, what level of intensity you're training to, and your proximity to failure. And you can achieve muscle hypertrophy anywhere probably within a five to 30 plus rep range. Mm. And I mean, you can achieve muscle hypertrophy still with lower rep ranges, but oh, yeah. it's just not quite as effective mm. as, as five plus. Mm. And that's a really valid point because there are a few things to examine in when looking at like the higher rep ranges and just the practicality of doing, let's say 20 to 25 reps for something like a deadlift versus a bicep curl. Mm. It, there's some exercises where it's going to be more appropriate to do those lower rep ranges because you don't want your mindset or your mental fatigue to be the limiting factor in something like a deadlift for 20 reps versus 
again, like a, a lateral raise for 20 reps where mm. it's unlikely you're, you're going to be mentally fatigued at that point. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think there's actually a lot of merit to if you are a coach or a trainer and you are prescribing or writing training programs, I think there's a hell of a lot of merit in actually training yourself because you kind of have to be in the trenches and you have to know what does that actually feel like and is that actually appropriate to program like is that actually appropriate to program a deadlift for 20 reps Eh, probably not but is it appropriate to program a lateral raise for 20 reps yeah probably so i think there's a hell of a lot of merit in actually training yourself and knowing what does it actually feel like to do these exercises in these rep ranges and is that viable totally yeah and i think it is a big common misconception as we said that there are these pre-described rep ranges Mm. for strength endurance hypertrophy which just isn't the case and especially people transitioning from like a gaining phase to a weight loss phase and and being like okay now it's time to lower the weight up the reps to burn more body fat or Mm -hmm. something which is i think we got that question last week we didn't answer it but that's also a misconception you Mm -hmm. don't you don't have to change your training in that respect yeah but uh, of course i think that we needed to give some practical advice i would generally veer more toward the side of lower reps so probably less than 12 for your bigger compound exercises and then more so for your isolation movements that's generally where you can start to veer toward the upper rep ranges like 20 plus but of course there's always going to be some crossover there because for example some people might do back extensions and not lift ridiculously heavy weight on a back extension and might like working in a higher rep range some people might be like Damo forest and hold a 45 kilogram dumbbell each hand and do back extensions as a compound movement you might only do 10 to 12 reps sort of thing so of course there's always going to be crossover there uh but would you agree with that for your bigger compounds generally veered toward the lower end of the yeah, rep range? Definitely. Yeah, I, I would say I, I rarely exceed 12 reps for those sorts of exercises. Mm-hmm. And what would be those sort of exercises in your book? RDLs, hack squats, and like my pressing movements, like mm-hmm. inclined chest press on the Smith machine, hammer strength, plate loaded chest press, dumbbell shoulder press, and like a bent over dumbbell row, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And what is your rationale for doing that? Well, as we just discussed, like my mechanical or my muscular strength wouldn't really be the limiting factor. It would more so be my mental, mm. mental fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think if you're approaching a 20 rep set on a deadlift, right? One, it's actually achieved 20 reps. You're probably using a much lighter weight compared to if you're doing like six to eight reps sort of thing. And by the time you reach 20 reps, you're like, man, I've just had it. Like, mm. I don't want to do deadlifts anymore. Or it might also be a assisting muscle group that's a limiting factor and not mm. the actual primary target muscle group. So yeah. for example, in let's say a a squat, like Mm -hmm. it could be your upper back stability or maybe in an RDL, it might end up being your upper back stability and not actually your glutes and hamstrings. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Yeah. So Eric Helms, he actually has these muscle and strength pyramid books and he's given a few recommendations for rep ranges. And if your primary goal is hypertrophy, he generally recommends that 
one third of your exercises are performed in that one to six rep range. And then the remaining two thirds of your exercises are performed in that six plus rep range, which I would generally agree with. Mm. Yeah, totally. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching the bodybuilding dietitians. See you there. Yeah, and I just think that also you're majorly minimizing the risk of you actually getting injured because I think that you could keep your form a hell of a lot more in check if you are doing your big compound movements in those lower rep ranges rather than doing them in excessively high rep ranges as well. You just are probably a lot less likely to get hurt compared to working in a high rep range for something like a lateral raise, man, you're probably not going to injure yourself. And I was actually thinking about this the other day as well. Like why with those isolation movements and generally it's, it's the smaller muscle groups that we actually tend to veer more toward those higher rep ranges. And what I was actually thinking about is that if you used a really heavy weight to perform that movement, like let's say you were using a crazy heavy weight to do a face pull or a crazy heavy weight to do a lateral raise, because those two muscle groups, like your rear delt and your lateral delts, they're very small in comparison to the other muscle groups around them. If you use a really heavy weight in order to just get that weight up, you're majorly gonna compromise your form. You're not actually gonna be able to target the target muscle and other muscle groups around it are going to take over. Things like your traps. Yeah, it makes sense that for most people when they try to do something like six reps for a chest fly, they're going to use more bicep. They might lean forward and use their body weight mm. or they might use more delt and less chest. So mm. I think choosing a higher rep range is probably most appropriate. Mm. Yeah, I find that just that's why it just comes with practice and actually getting in the gym yourself, doing a lot of different exercises and being exposed to them because I find that there's there's a sweet spot for a lot of different movements. Depending on the person as well, I find like, for example, for me, I'm very type two muscle fiber biased uh, compared to, for example, one of my brothers who was always a better long distance runner for mm. me. Funnily enough, he's my twin, but not my identical twin. So. Ah, so you're in the strength rep ranges and he's over in the endurance rep ranges. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and even looking at my program, like AJ programmed me a lot of top sets, like six to 10 reps and back off sets like 10 to 12. And for the top sets, I've definitely more so biased six to eight rather than eight to 10, mm. just because I, I, I perform better at that rep range mm-hmm. as opposed to eight to 10. Yeah. And for example, exactly like this is why there's crossover, right? Like some people for a leg extension, they might like working in like an eight to 12 rep range for a leg mm. extension. That's what if they I do can, for leg extension. Yeah. If you can control it well, other people might like to work in a 12 to 20 rep range for leg extension. Just get that gnarly pump. Mm. All right, well, moving on to this next question. This one says, do you like to incorporate meal plans for clients during prep or stay on macros? Interesting question. And I think a lot of the time we used to be really against meal plans Mm. or just not really particularly like them. And our opinion on them has definitely changed. I still would much rather teach people a foundation of knowledge around nutrition rather than just write them 
a meal plan. Mm. A lot of people, they do inquire with us and in their inquiry form, they just write, hey, I, I don't want anything else from you other than a meal plan. Mm. And You're just using me. <laughs> <laughs> what, am I just a dietitian to you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I... We don't really provide that as a solo service mm. and we could very easily chuck it on our, on our website and charge a decent amount for it. Yeah. But whenever someone does get a meal plan from us, it has to come through a single consultation. Yeah. Because, man, just like you, you can't just assume us. We know this now as dietitians that you can't just assume that people can eat every single food or that people mm. have access to every single food. Cause well, it's, it's not just that the thing that bothers me the most is that people expect a meal plan to be everything like to solve all of their problems. Mm. And like, sure, we, you, we can easily make a very nutritious meal plan based on foods that you like and exclude things that you dislike. Mm. However, like let's say you're losing body weight. Your goal is to lose fat. How long is a meal plan going to last for? Mm. Like if we give it to you for 2,400 calories and then you metabolically adapt in two weeks and then you can no longer lose weight on that. Yeah. It, it just is very frustrating. Yeah. Sometimes. You need that educational component behind it to know, okay, well, I've got to drop my calories on average by another 100 to 200 per day. Let's say 25 grams of that is going to come from carbs. 10 grams of that is going to come from fats which food sources on my meal plan actually contain carbohydrates mm. and fats? How can I actually manipulate that to meet my new energy requirements? So mm. that's why education, it is so freaking fundamental. Yeah. And in saying that, I, I still have some clients on meal plans mm. and a lot of those clients will pretty much all of them at the moment for me are on weight loss mm. journeys. And the reason being is that consistency while losing weight is very important and mm -hmm. uh, not just for like the weight loss itself but also the consistency of weigh-ins and eliminating some of that food focus which has helped i find with sticking to similar foods every day and not thinking about like what source what source of carbohydrate like source and source i guess <laughs> and particularly in comp prep especially towards the end where food focus is crazy and even a pinch of salt could fluctuate your way in. It's really handy to be eating very similar foods every day, AKA like a meal plan either prescribed by us or a client devises their own meal plan mm -hmm. and sends it through to us to check. Yeah. Rather than the term meal plan, I really like the term a set plan, mm. which is kind of a happy medium. So essentially what you would do is you would still provide your client with macronutrient targets and they have that education behind them of understanding, okay, like which foods within my plan are actually providing these macronutrients, but essentially creating a set plan with them based on foods that they enjoy and that they can digest well and make them feel really good and support their exercise performance and their recovery and just energy levels throughout the day. But then that plan is set and then you eliminate all variables so that you can be really confident that changes in scale weight are going to be correlated with changes in tissue weight, not oh, you know, I decided to swap a few things around and I ate half a drum cabbage last night, you know, and it's probably just food bulk or... What hey, cabbage? A drum carriage? A, a drum cabbage. Okay, not a drum carriage. <laughs> no, <laughs> didn't eat one of those. 
or, you know, someone's like, oh, you know, I, I wanted to put a bunch of soy sauce onto my fried rice. And yeah, it doesn't have that many calories, but boy, the sodium content's really high. So if you can just eliminate all of those moving parts and all of those variables, just for peace of mind, man. So just control all of those things, because that way, if scale weight is plateauing, you can be like, well, we've been eating the same thing basically every single day. Your energy output's been the same. Your energy input's been the same. You know, you've probably just hit a plateau. And then if you have your client as a friend on MyFitnessPal or whatever tracking app you are using, you can actually look at your set plan and be like, okay, we should probably drop about 100 calories this week. Let's take that from 25 grams of carbs. Which food sources are we going to take that from? And you can make that change to the set plan and then keep rolling with it. So I would say it's almost like a combination of both. We provide our clients with macronutrients, but also we encourage people to have pretty similar dietary patterns and eating patterns day to day. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And for example, um, my client, Scott, who I know will listen to this. Hey, Scott. (laughs) He's in prep right now and he's someone I'm very confident not writing a meal plan for in prep Mm. because I know he eats very, very similar things every day Mm -hmm. and it's, it's just not necessary for me to do that for him. And I think he would much prefer eating his own cream of wheat with the iced coffee sauce. Yes, something that we still need to try. (laughs) So, yeah, that's... And we do definitely treat our prep clients quite differently compared to, let's say, someone else Mm. um, who has a more general weight loss goal because reality is like prep is a different ball game compared to most other oh yeah if you're a lifestyle client you know if you feel like some soy sauce today have some soy sauce but if Mm. if you're in prep man like tell me if you're gonna drown your food in soy sauce yeah sure (laughs) yeah but it just helps but i think just obviously nailing those fundamentals to make sure that someone is well nourished they're getting enough calcium and iron and omega-3s into their diet they're eating enough fruits and vegetables and whole grains the whole shebang right and just filling that in with a plan that just works really well for them but i think what initially just put you and i off meal plans is because our first introduction to them was that they were very restrictive they were very bland and it was just very cookie cutter and also it just assumed that everyone on this planet had access to the same foods Mm. and when you're an online coach and you're working for with people all around the world, you're learning about different foods every single day. And geographically, you recognize that, wow, some people actually can't get that food where they live. (laughs) Sometimes you can't get oats. I've heard that people who travel to Japan in particular, and they're like on prep, sometimes it's really hard to actually get certain foods when you're Mm. in Japan. Have to have cream of rice, white rice, Mm. sushi. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of our answer to that question. But Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. Jack, I think we've got time for one more question. So this one, it says, what are the most nutritious sources of food? Cool. So a very specific question and not an uncommon question that we get asked like, okay, is this food better than this food? Or mm. what should, food should I be including? I want to get the most bang for my buck yeah. and stuff like I that. I want to follow the healthiest diet. Mm. So there's quite a few things to consider here. 
And I want to start with like superfoods because they're called superfoods, at least commercially for a reason in the mm. sense that they're very high in like one or two specific nutrients. Mm. And we've made actually a few posts on superfoods. And the reason why like I'm not the biggest fan is, is because of their definition. Like they're great in, in one particular nutrient, but that doesn't mean you can just eat superfoods and have a very comprehensive, well-balanced diet. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work like that. So I think when we look at having a nutritious, balanced diet, the food groups are really important. There are five food groups. So essentially lean protein sources, dairy, fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. And the reason why the fruit, the food groups exist is basically they cover your bases in terms of all the micronutrients. Mm-hmm. So for example... Whole grains are high in B vitamins, whereas meat is high in like iron and zinc. Mm-hmm. So basically by having a, a wholesome diet from the five food groups, you can rest assured that you're unlikely to be nutrient deficient unless you have like elevated requirements and stuff like that. Yeah. So rather than going out and searching for magical super foods, aim to have a super diet. <laughs> mm, totally. And I think there are certain guidelines we can give, like, for example, having different colored fruits and vegetables because different colors is often an indicator of nutrient content and also like antioxidants Mm. as well. And having whole grain bias, especially if if you have a lower intake of food, like if you're someone who is in a dieting phase or your daily intake of energy is quite low. So for example, 1500 to 2000 calories, it becomes more important for you then to have a more whole foods based diet because you have less leeway to obtain your nutrient quota from compared to someone like myself over 4000 calories. I have more than enough room to, or I kind of need to have that foundation of whole foods from the five food groups. And then on top of that, I need to add some refined options in order to maintain my training performance and not puke in between sessions. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were on like a 1500 calorie diet, you're eating around 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, even just to help meet your fiber intake alone, it would probably be in your best interest to try to get the large majority of those carbohydrates from fruits and vegetables Mm. and whole grains and low fat dairy sources, you name it rather than, you know, trying to get them from some maple syrup. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like if my diet in prep looked exactly the same as it did right now, I mean, it it wouldn't be possible because I would probably be on about half the amount of calories Mm -hmm. in prep as of right now. Yeah, but I know I said aim to have a super diet, but I also want to reiterate that that doesn't mean that your diet needs to be full of these quote-unquote super foods because I would almost argue that every single food that is recommended as part of the Australian Dietary Guidelines and the five food groups, those foods are all pretty super because they are all micronutrient dense and unique in their own ways. And we need a little bit of all of them to thrive. Mm. So variety is really key. And basically anything that kind of comes from the ground as a plant, man, that's gotta be good for you, you know? Mm. So just because blueberries are touted as being a superfood, don't forget about your strawberries. Mm. So Different colors. Yeah, absolutely. So red, well, I think if I'm correct, red and dark 
blue, purple, they're both anthocyanins. Mm, so you've got your anthocyanins and then purple and blue, those are like your anthocyanins and then your reds and your yellows and your oranges, those are more your like carotenoids. Right. Okay, I was a bit off. <laughs> so I think um, when we say variety, what we mean is basically just having a few different sources of each food group. Mm. And like the gold standard, the, nuff, the number you might have heard us tout before is like 30 different sources of plants every single week. Mm-hmm. So that could be your spices, it could be your fruits, vegetables, whole grains, you name it. Yeah, that's important because sometimes people hear 30 different plants, you know, mm. they think that they have to have a salad with 30 different vegetables in it. Yeah. Man, that would, I'd actually be like to up to that challenge. I'd go down to Sam Coco's, try to find if I can find 30 different salad vegetables all in one. Mm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It includes all of your grains, nuts, seeds, even that little bit of rosemary you might put on your kangaroo. That's technically even a plant too. And you got seven days to do it, or at least aim to do it. Yeah, so what that might look like is not having rice for all your meals, Mm. trying to have different carb sources, not having a banana every single day at breakfast. Maybe you'll have a banana one day, an apple the next day, a day and just rotate between them. Having seasonal fruits and vegetables, so... That also links to another question, which is like, what is the cheapest fruit and veg to buy? Mm -hmm. It's essentially, most of the time it's going to be what's in season because there's going to be, it's that case of supply and demand. There's a much bigger supply of of fruits and vegetables in season. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's cheaper. And also, usually frozen veg will be pretty damn cheap as well. Mm -hmm. Not really frozen fruit though. That's a bit pricier. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're looking for the cheapest fruit, just look what cost the least at your fruit mart or when you go to the supermarket what's Mm. on sale it's probably in season it's probably super fresh too yeah so i guess if you were looking at all of your meals let's say that you're eating four times during the day and you've got a protein a carbohydrate and a fat source in all of those meals try to have each one of those sources come from a different food source so if you're looking at your carbohydrate source across all four meals Try to mix it up past just rice. Try to not have your rice bubbles and then your rice cakes and then your white rice and then your rice noodles. You know, mix it up a little bit. So maybe throw in a wheat-based product in there. Maybe throw in a buckwheat product in there. Maybe throw in some sort of lentil product or potato or sweet potato, something else and fruit to mix up that more carbohydrate-rich source in all of your meals. Same goes for your protein. You might have some egg whites, you might have some yogurt, you might have some chicken or some fish and then some red meat. It goes on and on and on. And yeah, so if you look at all your meals, just try to be like, okay, cool. Are, do I have a variety of protein, carbs, and fats across the day in each meal? And if you can kind of tick those boxes, you can be pretty confident that you have a pretty well-balanced diet with a decent amount of variety. Mm, for sure. Yeah, I like that analogy you used about the white rice. May I stole it from someone (laughs) sitting right across from me. (laughs) But anyway, I think that was the last question for today. But something we always end on is one thing that we learned this week. So, Jack, what did you learn this week? So, I learned that Spotify has actually introduced a rating system, which is very important for us as podcasters. We always appreciate anyone who leaves a five-star review, whether it's on the Apple iTunes podcast app or Spotify now. So on that note, if you think we're worthy of five stars, it would mean a lot to us if you could please leave us a rating on Spotify. If you're listening on here, 
according to our analytics, I know quite a few people listen on Spotify, so be very handy. So essentially what you do is head to our show page. There'll be those three little dots. I never really know what to, to call them, but <laughs> you just tap on those three dots and then you say rate the show, something like that. And then you uh, click the, the nice five stars there. Yeah. And of course, if you're listening on iTunes and you're yet to do that too, and you like the channel, please feel free to leave us a friendly five mm. stars over there as well. Yep. And to clue people in why we like to get five stars, like it's not just for, I guess, our, our own self-benefit. It's <laughs> To boost our <laughs> podcast egos. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not for that. It's, it's because our name, The Bodybuilding Dietitians, like our podcast isn't only specific to bodybuilding. As yeah. you know, we discuss a lot of other helpful nutrition stuff. And because of our name, uh, we often attract people who are exclusively bodybuilders mm. and by getting five star reviews from other people who listen to other podcasts really helps us get into the more nutrition niche or the broader nutrition niche a bit more as opposed to just being pigeonholed into bodybuilding. Yeah. So helps us gain a variety of listeners. Absolutely. That just helps us help a variety of people and just yep. share our message, which is ultimately the goal. Mm. But what did you learn this past week? Ooh, well, I learned this past week that not all hope is lost if you can't find kangaroo mints at Woolworths. If you guys listened to the recent 2023 episode, you'd know that Jack and I have been on the hunt, not literally, but we've been going to Woolworths to try to find some kangaroo mints, but they keep getting sold out. But yesterday, one of my clients actually let me know that they sell wallaby mints for the same price at Kohl's, and I'm yet to try wallaby mints, but... Next time we're near Coles, I might have to duck in and uh, buy some. No, might not duck in, might hop in and uh, get some wallaby. What do you think? Do you think it will taste the same? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Uh, we've had the discussion about how you feel about consuming wallaby mints versus kangaroo. Jack's like, they're smaller. And I'm like, honey, what, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I guess it doesn't really mean, I guess you could say rabbits are smaller as well. Mm, and rabbits taste good. Yeah, I've never tried rabbit. Oh, well, maybe one day. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I found out this week, guys. If, if you're stuck on finding kangaroo, there's wallaby too. Mm. Especially, I bought beef mints the other day and it's bloody expensive so expensive man it's like it was ten dollars for 500 grams and that's almost yeah double the price yeah because kangaroo is twelve dollars per one kilogram yeah yeah and they've even raised that price like mm. when we started buying it was closer to like ten dollars fifty yeah i well, pay I'm... attention to these things every time i go and buy it they're like i'm like man they raised the price by 50 cents mm. but i'm gonna buy it anyway <laughs> get that red meat but yeah very thankful to lauren for uh looking after our iron status but yeah just wanted to clue you guys in because that's something i learned this week too but if you did enjoy this podcast please remember to take a screenshot post it to your instagram stories tag jack tag myself tag tbd if you are listening on spotify please feel free to leave that new five-star rating and we'll catch you next week 